Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Well, if he's elected, I mean, we're done. I mean, as a democracy. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Fiona Hill. You were probably first introduced to Fiona Hill during the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. As a leading expert on Russia with decades of experience advising three presidents, she drew attention for her serious and unvarnished witness testimony, as well as her strong Northern English accent. Her testimony about Trump's actions with regard to Ukraine was so impressive that even Fox News hosts described her as powerful. She's authored several books and is out with a new one this month, a memoir on her incredible life and career called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. I called up Fiona Hill this week to discuss why she went from protesting in the Women's March to serving in the Trump White House and how economic struggles fueled the rise of populism in the United States United Kingdom, and Russia. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. It's great to be here. So I just finished reading your book, and I've read a million of these insider exposés dishing on the Trump White House. And yours was one of the very few that was fascinating beyond the juicy details and gossip of what happened in the Trump administration. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. And it's compelling I think in large part because it tells your story from being born into a working class background in a decaying industrial town in the north of England to studying at St. Andrews, then Harvard, then becoming an American citizen and serving as a foreign policy expert under three U.S. presidents. Could you tell us about that journey and what led you to come to the come to America and serve in the U.S. government? Well, the title of the book itself um, is really you know, one of the main reasons that I ended up here. My father had said to me as I was leaving high school in 1984 against the backdrop of a pretty major youth unemployment crisis, about 90% of kids when they were graduating from high school did not know what they were going to do next at that point. Uh, they might eventually get a job, but you know, 90% of them were leaving school without anything else to go on to. And of the, the other 10%, you know, some might, uh, like myself, go on to college, but um, others were much more likely to go off into um, some kind of apprenticeship or, you know, perhaps some first job immediately. Only five or six percent of British kids at that point went on to university. And my dad, you know, was encouraging me to um, basically apply to university. But on the way home one night from a part time job I had in a local pub, which was opposite the hospital where he was uh, by then working, he said to me, you know, um, you know, if you do go to college, uh, you won't really, you won't come back. There's nothing for you here, pet. If you're going to look for opportunity and do something with an education and get that education, you're going to have to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we had this whole long conversation about that. And one of the um, places that my dad had always wanted to come was the United States. So my dad had been a coal miner. The coal mines were all closing down. He'd gone from one mine to the next as they closed. And then in the um, 1960s, uh, the time when his last coal mine was closing, there were mines in the United States, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, places like that, that were advertising for miners from County Durham, the place that I grew up in, which is a very famous coal mining area, and had to go over and work in those mines. The irony, of course, would have been if my dad had then moved over uh, to one of those places, he'd really looked into the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, 
those mines would have closed too in the yeah. 1970s and 1980s and we would have gone from one you know kind of basically declining coal town to another hmm. and you know that, that kind of impulse my my parents my my father my mother as well you know encouraged me to go out get an education go do something uh, with myself go further than they had in education you know eventually kind of propels me towards the united states through that educational doorway i got scholarships i got you know all kinds of opportunities that you know were, were totally off limits for them but actually turned out to be totally off limits for lots of other people because a lot of it was chance it was timing you know the particular period in which um i went off to university i decided to study russian in the wake of the war scare of 1983 over the euro missile crisis i described this in the book it was 1984 when i get to university you know george orwell 1984 was also the backdrop of the uk miners strike there was just a lot going on Hmm. And Russia and Russian um, seemed to be the thing to study. I hadn't really thought it all the way through whether I'd be able to get a job out of it, though. <laughs> that started <laughs> to worry me after a time. Here am I, the kid of a minor uh, and, a, and a midwife. My mom was a nurse. And, you know, I'm studying Russian. Am I really going to be able to get a job with this? And so there's all kinds of episodes I tell in the book about how I, you know, wondered and thought long and hard about this. But the timing was perfect because Mikhail Gorbachev comes along. You get Perestroika and Glasnost and... I get a scholarship to the Soviet Union in 1987, 1988, when the Gorbachev-Reagan summit is taking place. And I meet all these Americans who tell me about scholarships to the United States. And I end up here in 1989 in the United States. And from there, there's this just wild ride of one thing after another that then, you know, end up with also a whole series of coincidences, but also, uh, you know, professional by this point uh, experience of ending up in the administration under Donald Trump. Not a place I would ever have thought that I would end up. Um, I had actually heard of Donald Trump when I was back in, sure. in the north of England. I wasn't exactly living under a rock. Yeah. But at that point, you know, he was a celebrity businessman, you know, popping up, you know, here and there and everywhere, you know, kind of not somebody that anyone would have, certainly from my background, have taken seriously as a prospective presidential candidate. And I think all of us, even uh, us Americans, had that uh, perception up until 2016 when he when he was the president. Um, but what you know, one of the most compelling parts of the book, and you touched on it there, is that it weaves your experience in Northern England with the post-industrial decline in the United States and Russia, where a loss of economic opportunity prompted hopelessness, and then the embrace of populist figures like Donald Trump. Um, I should note that my my father was from Rotherham, so your uh, really? analysis, yeah. Um, oh my uh, goodness, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, then Rotherham to uh, the listeners who were like Rotherham, <laughs> <laughs> Northern England, yeah, um, British Midlands, Northern England, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, I so, mean, was also famous for its industry and then not <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so when, when I was reading your book and your analysis of the Thatcher era. Uh, in Northern England sort of was very familiar to me. I heard that, uh, heard, heard about that a lot growing up. Um, but could you explain that the through line between uh, the UK, the US and Russia and how the decline in, in, you know, those three countries exploded into the political arena? Yeah, because it's weird how they all sort of end up in the same place because the mm. timelines are actually different. You know, yeah. so for, you know, your family and, and my family, in the north of England, you know, places that are sort of like basically anywhere north of London would have counted at this particular point. All of the manufacturing industry uh, basically gets turned on its head and starts to close down under Margaret Thatcher in uh, beginning in the late 1970s and then into the 1980s because it all gets privatised. I mean, a lot of people may have forgotten that the commanding heights of uh, British industry, the heavy industry, the coal mines, the steelworks, the shipbuilding, you know, for example, the railways, 
were nationalised after World War II to help with their reconstruction. Hmm. They used to be under private hands all the way through the war, but the war was so devastating to the British economy that most of the industries were uh, in peril. And so the British government took them on and then, you know, kept uh, them under uh, British, British national control. I mean, you know, run by technocrats, of course, up until the Thatcher period when she decides to kind of privatise them, sell off a lot of uh, the um, these commanding heights of industry, but also modernise them, you know, moving away from this mass labour focus and, you know, focusing on innovation, new technology, automation, and building up the financial services sector that Britain is so well known for now. And it's also this kind of period, um, you know, just before Margaret Thatcher comes along when Britain uh, joins the European Union. And Britain joins the European Union for, for the trade and economic benefits, being one of the poorest countries in Europe at that time, still having not really recovered from uh, the blows of World War II to the economy. So the 1980s is a really bleak period in Britain, uh, marked by mass unemployment. The Soviet Union, however, you know, is this great big blue collar country filled with workers in smokestack industries, also built up after World War II. And of course, they nationalized. <laughs> they were always national. They were built up by central planning of the Communist Party. Yeah. Privatization comes there as well in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when a new government comes in and tries to transform the Soviet Union overnight, didn't really work too well under the guise of you know, what they call shock therapy to transform a centrally planned economy to a market capitalist economy. And mass unemployment, closure of uh, factories. In fact, they don't really close, but they're just no longer able to function. And mm. they basically result to barter. People's wages don't get paid. People's pensions don't get paid. It's a really um, you know, difficult time. And all of these uh, phenomena, this phenomena, you know, kind of very similar, but in these different timeframes in the United States as well, especially after the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, you know, that Wall Street gets ba bailed out, but Main Street doesn't. They lead to really deep seated grievances, not just socioeconomic grievances, but political grievances. People feel like they're being forgotten and left behind when their local economies don't bounce back. No new industry comes in to replace the steelworks or the coal mine, and they don't have the educational. Uh, opportunities or the qualifications to move somewhere else to get a job in the new knowledge economy. And eventually they become disaffected with the mainstream parties who never seem to come along and fix everything. And so 2016, you get this kind of weird convergence. You've already had Vladimir Putin in Russia, who's arrived there in 2000, late 1999. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make Russia great again. And Putin then decides to interfere in the US election. And you have in 2016 Brexit, the decision for, uh, for Britain uh, to uh, have a referendum, a national referendum on leaving the European Union, because the European Union has been kind of associated in uh, popular politics with this idea of everybody being left uh, behind in the north of England and elsewhere, you know, kind of north of London, because all the money is going to Brussels and Brussels isn't allowing the UK government to sort of fix the situation. And there's all these immigrants coming from all over Europe, taking away potential jobs in the UK, you know, the, the, the classic, mm. uh, you know, noise around these kinds of things. It was a sort of a populist revolt, but also, you know, the, an idea of kind of wresting control back to the UK and away from the EU. In 2016 is Trump, and Trump happens to be in Turnbury in Scotland playing golf at his golf course when the Brexit referendum takes place. And he famously says there'll be a Brexit moment in the United States, not the United States is going <laughs> to pull out of the EU, it's not fast, hmm. but the, the similar revolt of people who are feeling aggrieved from, you know, the working and blue collar, you know, kind of classes. 
will be, you know, kind of sweeping him into victory, he predicts. And he's absolutely right, because people are fed up with the mainstream parties. Trump isn't really a member of any party. He's a wildcat candidate, a guy like Vladimir Putin said he's going to fix things. And people are hoping that he's going to bring some meaningful change. Now, your book serves as something of a warning about the future of this kind of political climate. Um, you write that Trump's four-year presidency could be a preface rather than a postscript to the demise of U.S. democracy. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, look, part of the problem in all three countries is that the deep-seated economic problems are extraordinarily hard to fix. It's very easy to say you're going to fix them and deal in slogans uh, and very difficult to actually fix them because this could be multi-generational, you know, massive effort on so many fronts at the same time. So much easier to throw out some slogans, blame others, and you know, uh, try to kind of keep yourself in power by putting on these great shows, these big shows of you know trying to uh, you know, give the impression that you're doing something about it, which Trump was extraordinarily good at, hmm. and Putin's also extraordinarily good at. Both Trump and Putin's are performance artists. Putin, for example, spends hours on the television through these direct call-in shows, these live shows where he takes everyone's questions and says he's going to fix things, and you might even then see the camera panning. You know, behind him to a sudden crew of people have appeared out of nowhere, you know, in a remote area filling in a pothole, just as Vladimir Putin said that they would do. Of course, this is all for show because of course, you know, yeah. Prefigured these questions beforehand. They're not. I'm like, shocked that oh Trump never yeah. never did that. But Trump does things like this. You know, he yeah. brings steel workers to the sure. uh, to the Oval Office and signs with a flourish with a sharpie. There were the trucks, trucks at the White House, aluminum cards, trucks at the White House. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the big show, and mm. the danger, of course, of these politics is, you know, first of all, the showman, the populist leader, you know, they're, they're, they're playing for the crowd all the time. They're not implementing policies. They have to kind of cover up the fact that they're not really doing anything. You know, you lead more and more to just this sort of charismatic uh, personalities uh, out there uh, dominating uh, all politics. I mean, Trump and, and Putin suck out all of the oxygen out of all of the other kind of politics around you. And nothing really gets done and people's grievances increase. And then they're looking for someone to blame, but it's not happening. And both Trump and Putin have always tended to blame others. They're not the people who are to blame. Trump has, uh, you know, the same approach. It's the Democrats. It's, um, you know, the the woke, you know, uh, left. It's this. It's that. It's the other. It's deep state coup potting mm. bureaucrats who are unelected. And that kind of atmosphere becomes extraordinarily dangerous. It increases political polarization, and it also you know, basically engenders a significant societal division. And, you know, Trump has really played off all those divisions that we've seen in his time in office and continues to do so on the outside. I, I want to talk about your time working in uh, the Trump administration, which you write about in fascinating detail in the book. You attended the Women's March in 2017 after Trump was elected and then soon after started working for the administration on the National Security Council. What prompted you to join an administration that you had been protesting? I'd been processing all the misogyny and the sexist commentary and everything that was coming from Trump himself. Mm. Uh, and I have to say, in my experience inside, the misogyny, you know, was really in uh, around him and his very close inner circle. It wasn't widespread across. It the wasn't government. pervasive throughout the administration. It wasn't pervasive uh, throughout the government. I certainly didn't get anything like that from cabinet members, mm. the national security advisors, and you know the people that I worked with. Just to make that clear, but it was very much him and his own personality, and then how that rubbed off on the people, you know, immediately um, around him. Again, with some exceptions, of course, not everybody you know, was, um, you know, kind of uh, misogynistic or sexist in the same way that uh, he certainly was. But the main point was I was an expert on Russia. 
I'd already been in the government. I'd been the national intelligence officer for Russia during both Bush and Obama. And I'd also spent all of my time at Brookings. I've been at Brookings, you know, for several decades now, two decades working on Russia. Hmm. I'd written a book about Vladimir Putin. I knew what was going on, at least, you know, to a large degree, but not everything, of course, every detail in the 2016 Russian intervention in our presidential election. And I was deeply concerned about what had happened. I would been hoping that I'd be able to give some advice to people that I knew who uh, were entering the administration from the outside, but it came very clear that I could only do that by going in. Mm. And the people who asked me to come in, there was, you know, a couple of purposes. One, they wanted me to sit down with Trump and try to do the kind of briefing, you know, blunt, no holds barred briefing that I'd done for uh, Obama and uh, also Bush and other, you know, cabinet officials in my time at the National Intelligence Council talk about you know the book and all the other things that um you know i knew about uh putin but also was to work behind the scenes with um the rest of the government across the whole government as i had done when i was at the national intelligence council i've been the key you know analyst uh there bringing all of the analysis forward to the policymakers. but to sit on the policy side of things you know to try to help figure out how we were going to beat back you know this russian interference on all these different levels i mean i wouldn't have been doing this on my own i've been coordinating it and that's why I went in. And, you know, there was also, of course, part of me after watching all this, well, I would be a woman, I'd be an immigrant, you know, kind of walking through those doors every day. I just, you know, hold my head high and do the very best possible mm. job just to make a point on that front. But that was, you know, a tertiary, you know, kind of lesser uh, motivation. The main one was really trying to do something about Russia. But, so that- you know, as I learned and I say in the book, ha, that <laughs> did not really kind of work out uh, as anybody planned, least of all myself. One one passage that I think underscores that um, about the you know the efforts to try and give Trump some some advice on on Russia and other things is uh, it 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 also underscores a uh, Trump's obsession with cable news hosts, which is obviously a big fixation of us here at Mediaite. Um, you describe a, an important meeting in the Oval Office um, to prepare for the Helsinki summit with Putin in uh, 2018, and Trump, who seems utterly disinterested, picks up the phone to call a Fox News host. Um, could you tell us what happened there in that meeting? Yeah, that was one of, um, you know, just so many bizarre incidences and, and just proved how difficult it was just to penetrate, you know, to kind of whatever, you know, bubble he had around him, you know, to be able to get information across unless you actually were appearing on television. If you're right there in front of him, he, you know, really didn't want to pay attention. And also yeah. if people with staff or, you know, in some way working for him, no matter how illustrious they were, you know, how accomplished they were in their whole professional careers they were then just staff I mean he didn't Mm. you know kind of see you know um, them as playing any important role so in this case we had the opportunity to have the U.S. ambassador to Russia John Huntsman a very distinguished individual who uh, had been a candidate for president himself Mm. and you know the governor of Utah and so many other things besides a very successful businessman philanthropist you know you name it and here was ambassador Huntsman there to try to basically talk to President Trump about this very important encounter in Helsinki. And Trump doesn't want to talk to John Huntsman about this. He wants to talk to John Huntsman about his daughter, Abby Huntsman, who's the Fox News host. And then he gets in his idea, he's going to call her. Right who was then, at the time, I believe, a Fox and Friends host. Yeah. Fox and, and Friends like co-host. Five yeah. minutes in. I mean, we never even got the briefing underway. And, you know, we're sitting there with uh, Ambassador Huntsman. We'd We'd prepped for ages, you know, with, with the National Security Advisor, trying to figure out the best way to approach things. And it was done before we even got started. Yeah. So we didn't ever get to talk. 
about the prospect of the meeting. And President Trump was very happy that he had this whole back and forth with, you know, Ambassador Huntsman and his daughter. And it was mainly to gossip about Fox, right? It was sure. to ask I mean, it wasn't about sort of what to was. Do. I mean, yeah, Abby Huntsman didn't offer her thoughts on meeting with Vladimir Putin, you know, kind <laughs> of. Um, so, you know, every effort that we made, you know, to bring in other people who we thought, you know, Henry Kissinger came in at one point, it was just chaos. It was the day that um, Trump had fired uh, Comey, hmm. you know, the FBI, uh, you know, it's, it's just absurd. And here's Henry Kissinger, you know, the kind of one of the kind of greatest strategic thinkers. And he kind of comes in on this kind of chaotic, you know, back of the Comey firing. And this was also the day that uh, President Trump had the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and the ambassador Kislyakin and made all kinds of off-the-cuff comments. And so it was just a kind of... I remember that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Kissinger's coming in behind this and it's like, what's going on here? <laughs> that was another, you know, wasted opportunity. We we tried everything, you know, yeah. basically to, try, to get him to focus in on how to manage, you know, the, the Russia portfolio. All he wanted was to sit down with Putin himself, turn on his charm and charisma, and his mm. view then make a deal with the Russians. Now, the deal he wanted to make was on arms control. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was actually quite serious about this, but he was so disorganized mm. and so undisciplined and so, you know, kind of difficult to basically brief and to give him information that he needed. I mean, occasionally he, he would be on the ball on things because he was interested in nuclear weapons. Sometimes he caught Putin out. when Putin It was, was, a, it was an obsession of his since the 1980s, you said, yeah. Exactly. I mean, maybe even earlier. But I mean, yeah. in the 1980s, it was clear it was an obsession. It wasn't just about building Trump Towers in um, in Moscow. He was, you know, mm. kind of focused on arms control. He had this uncle from MIT who was always talking about it. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, he thought that he, he was the special source that was needed in this mix to resolve everything. But mm. he never... He never got it going. What do you think of Fox News in general? Do you consider it to be one of the factors that's hastening this sort of American democratic backslide that you speak about in, in the book? Well, absolutely, because it becomes basically just a mouthpiece for Trump. Mm. And it becomes a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a two-way conversation. Did you people know, in the administration sort of... House, it was so tightly linked in to him, yeah. his personality, his choice of people. Look, mm. one of the reasons I got selected was because like, I appeared on a Fox News show <laughs> with Katie McFarlane. She was the one yeah. you know, who kind of wanted to bring me on. But there was always a Fox connection wherever yeah. you looked with kind of key people that he was listening to. I doubt greatly, you know, he saw me on Fox News. But Ambassador Bolton, John Bolton, um, was partly selected because he'd appeared on Fox News. If people wanted to talk to Trump and to get through to him, they appeared on Fox News. Hmm. Now, he didn't just appear in the Oval Office. Sometimes he would invite them in. And there was yeah. just this, this symbiotic relationship that was, of course, unhealthy for our democracy. Hmm. And your... Um... 2019 testimony during the House impeachment inquiry uh, on Trump's dealings with Ukraine, it drew pretty fevered media coverage um, at the time. I'm curious as to what you thought of uh, the reaction on Fox News, having sort of followed it from inside the White House. Um, I went back and looked and some of the network, including Brett Baer and Chris Wallace, praised you. Um, but the top, the network's top opinion hosts like Sean Hannity, Dan Bongino attacked you. Um, did that phase you at the time? What did you think about that? No, it still doesn't faze me. It's kind of what I've come to expect. And it is yeah. true that there are some really, you know, great objective analysts um, still on Fox News. Hmm. But it's that very slanted uh, coverage that, you know, sadly we've come to expect. And I mean, look, we, we see it from all kinds of different vantage points. Um, cable 
news, you know, in many respects, has started to mirror Facebook. I mean, the algorithms, let's say, you know, as we've heard a lot through the um, Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan, are skewed on cable news as well. And actually, in a lot of uh, news programs now, toward outrage, towards kind of making a big thing about things, frankly, making things up. Mm. And there were an awful lot of people commenting on me. I mean, Laura Ingram famously said that I had a hoity-toity Prince Andrew accent. I thought, well, there's <laughs> nothing about the United Kingdom, does She's she? never been to England. <laughs> She's never been to England. And uh, yeah, thanks. I'm not sure that uh, who should be insulted by that one. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, kind of a just a, shows a complete and utter lack of doing any kind of research yeah. into, into what you're doing. And apparently the other night, Mark Meadows and Laura Ingram were turning themselves into pretzels and having a conniption about things I've said on uh, on the news as well, and oh, wow. having some kind of bizarre back and forth. I mean, it, this is just kind of you know constant commentary without any in depth analysis here. This yeah. isn't news. I mean, it's kind of, and this you know obviously again not across the board. We have to be uh, clear. And I would spend you know quite a bit of time myself watching Fox News and mm. Fox Network and. You know, I once uh, found myself um, at a, a White House event sitting next to Rupert Murdoch. And oh, wow. had the most fascinating, interesting, very sensible, very objective conversation with him that I won't relate because I was just kind of amazed. Sure, yeah. Somebody who really deeply understood the news and world affairs, very mm -hmm. well informed. But obviously, you know, like the owners of many of uh, these um, outlets, cable outlets, and uh, also, you know, kind of uh, Facebook and platforms are interested in making money. Yeah. And the algorithms and the programming is designed to make money. Do you see parallels between sort of the Fox News setup in the United States and media in the UK and in Russia? Well, in the UK, media is trending in that direction as well. I mean, there's this mm. big debate in the UK now about setting up a similar network to Fox News. It doesn't yeah. go off, you know, so well, but there's a lot of pressure being put on the BBC and on Channel 4, for example. I mean, the... the, the um, you know, the programming that like PBS and others tries to kind of emphasize the sort of more objective, informational, non-political programming. You know, there's somehow, you know, the idea that this is something to be challenged. You know, and a lot of our problems these days is that we don't have a shared information space. Everybody has their own information mm. space. And a lot of the media is obviously pandering to particular interests. You know, I mean, I, I mean, there's, if you get on the internet, there's the practically cat TV and dog TV for <laughs> yeah. love, you know, cats and dogs. And maybe they're, you know, they're giving you the news as well. I mean, th this is not an exaggeration. I mean, people are being selected out there and divided out on the base of particular preferences. So yeah, we're seeing that um, on all kinds of different fronts. In Russia, absolutely. I mean, there's um, uh, an author, former uh, journalist, actually, for Russian television, Peter Pomerantsev, mm. who's, you know, works here in the United States as well as the UK, who's written, um, you know, very eloquently about uh, Russian television and the media space there that changed dramatically from the 1990s, moving away also from objective television to state propaganda to opinion, also intended to draw uh, segments of the population in, and, you know, frankly, to create an alternate universe. Mm. You know, nothing is real and everything is possible. Um, you know, it's kind of the whole uh, known mantra of all of this. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of research on this that shows the similarities. And they're all disturbing trends because it's getting away yeah. from the role of the third estate as a check and a balance, a source of trusted news more towards sort of pandering to different segments of the population and pushing propaganda, not just of state propaganda, but special interests because of the amount of money that's flowing around. Television has become also an extension of super PACs, political mm. action committees. 
you mentioned before uh, about how John Bolton sort of basically went from Fox News into the White House. And um, I, I think w- one of the interesting parts of the book uh, is that you talk about how a lot of them soured on the president when they watched how he operated up close, right? They sort of, they wanted to get into the administration. Once they were there, they soured on him. Did most people who served in the White House that you at least deal with, did they you know, arrive at sort of this collective consensus that Trump was a little bit out of his mind or at least sort of a, a, a giant you know, baby? Was that talked about a lot within the administration? It wasn't really talked about all that much. Really? But- there was, there was the way that people's body language, the way that they looked mm. at each other, you know, the exchange glances. I mean, people were very careful um, about the way that they talked about all of this for all kinds of obvious reasons. I mean, yeah. there were many people who were there, you know, really trying to serve the country to kind of keep things, you know, together on um, US policy, because there was a lot of areas that the president didn't touch, actually, you know, where the matters of state at all different domestic and foreign policy levels just, you know, went along with um the uh you know professional career staff and cabinet um secretaries and others who were you know working very hard to keep the economy on track etc but you know obviously um we now know you know from all the people who have left that there was a kind of a common understanding and there were people like miles harrison who wrote anonymous the article in the midst Mm. of uh his time in uh the dhs later you know um wrote uh the same book, Anonymous, about kind of blowing up and what he was seeing inside of um, the White House and eventually revealed himself. But there was also this kind of night of the long knives and um, hyper-politicization of things and partisan approach inside of the White House uh, with the loyalists of Trump, Mm. who had everybody else in their crosshairs. Particularly Um, in 2017. That that really did kind of feel like, you know, 1984, George Orwell or Animal Farm or any of, uh, you know, those analogies that everybody wants to make clockwork orange. You know, I often felt that, you know, I describe in the book that it felt like being in Alice in Wonderland and, you know, the the court of uh, the the Queen of Hearts, you know, off with their heads all the time and, you know, strange games being played and you had no idea who these crazy characters were. And it, it was, it was, that was pretty hard going because a lot of people were not taking governance seriously and it was a lot of focused loyalty on trump himself and we've now had i mean so many people um leave the administration and either you know explain in books or in you know op-eds or or on television explain how unfit trump is for office even now you know stephanie grisham who was i think perceived as a loyalist when she served in the administration um do you think that's understood by the broader public well, a, a large swathe of the broader public, yes, but for yeah. the people who um, are voting you know, for Trump still, yes and no. I mean, I know mm-hmm. for a fact, just from personal conversations with people who are Republicans, can't stand Trump, mm-hmm. but will still vote for him and Republicans because they can't countenance basically voting as they put it for the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's you know, been so much of the demonization um, of you know the the left or the center left or the Democrats by you know kind of uh, Republican operatives that even if our democracy is in danger a lot of people can't you know kind of bring themselves to vote across party lines. I mean that's the nature of our whole political system because it's the same you know with the Democrats we took Trump out of the picture. You know we've got to a state now in America where people see their primary identity as Democrat or Republican and they can't abide the idea of someone you know from their family marrying someone of the opposite. Uh, party and that's bizarre I mean we, this used to be racial this used to be religious you know in the United States of course we've had these cleavages but you know for over 
political parties and lines. I mean, this is, I mean, all of this is ridiculous, but that seems especially so. People are, you know, introducing each other. And, you know, I mean, when you when you meet someone at a, at a cocktail party or, well, we don't with no COVID anymore, but okay. When you meet someone for the first time, do you immediately ask them, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I mean, that's not usually the first thing that props up in my mind is neither of these things. Yeah. And so we've got ourselves into this kind of state where I think you know, some people are fixated on the party partisan divisions, red, blue America, and others are still captivated by Trump. And they don't see this. And, you know, they, they will reject that. They, in polling, it shows that, you know, a very large number of people who still uh, identify themselves as Republicans don't want to hear any criticism of Trump. And when Trump says, you know, about Stephanie Grisham and others, well, they're just angry people. They've had failed relationships. I mean, he did a statement about me as well. Fiona Hill was terrible yep. at her job. And I was like, finally, a job review. You know, and basically, um, it's taken you know a long time. And then he calls me a deep state stiff with a nice accent. I saw that. Hey, it's complimenting funny, the accent. Yeah, but funny on one hand, but very sad on the other. Yeah, but it's effective, right? I mean, what's he what's he intending to do? Discredit, repudiate the the people, so yeah. that he didn't never never knew them. I mean, mm. there are an enormous amount of people. I mean, that should give us concerns about his memory, because you know he certainly doesn't remember every single person who's ever been in his. Um, is basically close entourage. A lot of people have like, never seen them before, and you've got you know hundreds of pictures of them in the same the same frame. Yeah, you know th this is all very problematic. But he's very good. He is a very clever retail politician. He's a showman. He's charismatic. He pulls people in. It's a cult of personality, mm. and it takes a lot of people to be able to step back from that. You had a front row seat to the role that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump played in the White House. And I, I think their promise, like their prominence in a presidential administration is one of the weirder aspects of, of the Trump administration. Um, what did you think of Jared and Ivanka? Look, I actually saw them, you know, on a pretty neutral level, trying their best with, you know, the mm -hmm. hand they were dealt. I mean, I actually, apart from a few kind of early incidents, which I describe in the book, and just the absurdity sometimes of some of the things that they were in charge with, <laughs> didn't necessarily see them, you know, as malign to any extent. No, but they shouldn't have been there. Yeah. It's just as simple as that. I mean, no senior officials, kids should be working, you know, close to them in an administration. Yeah. I mean, we need, we, you know, kind of should have very strict rules and regulations against nepotism. I mean, we do, you know, in the private sector, you know, and elsewhere and, you know, kind of the, the United States just seem to be in the business of political dynasties. People will always talk about, well, what if JFK and Robert Kennedy? Well, he shouldn't have been attorney general either under his brother's administration, in my view. I mean, you know, this is one of the problems of American politics. We threw off a dynasty in the American Revolution. We created yeah, a republic, you know, beginning in the preamble with we the people. And then it's like, you know, we the people and some of my family seem to have kind of crept in. You know, we've, we've had in the past, you know, political dynasties with people with cousins and brothers and fathers and sons. And, you know, I think we it is tough to be mindful. I mean, look, it, it may well be that that person may be the best for the job and, you know, ought to, you know, kind of at least be given a chance. But they shouldn't be put in positions that are so closely entwined. The idea of having special advisors who are your family members, whether they're paid or not, is a massive problem. Yeah. As we have discussed, you were top advisor to Trump on Russia. Um, Russia was obviously an obsession of the pundit class when you joined the administration in 2017, given the interference in the in the previous election. It was particularly an, an obsession of sort of mainstream media outlets like MSNBC. 
but in the book, you sort of reject the common wisdom that the Russian interference is what delivered Trump to the White House. You write, uh, I have a quote here, the voters who had swung the ballot for Donald Trump in critical counties in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan were swayed by consideration of their own personal family and communal circumstances, not by the fake internet personas devised by Russian intelligence services. Do you think that the fixation that liberals have on Russian meddling is over the top or exaggerated to any extent? I think it was exaggerated. It's not over the top because the Russians definitely did interfere and they exploited the cleavages and the divisions that we already had. And in some cases, it may well be that someone's mind was swayed by someone who thought that, that was, you know, kind of, you know, let's just pick a random name, you know, Bob from pick a town in Pennsylvania or mm -hmm. pick a town in Michigan who was on the internet, you know, saying various things and Bob turns out to be not Bob at all, but Bova, you know, Vladimir yeah. from St. Petersburg. At Yandex. You know, so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Yandex.ru. You know, so it's entirely possible that could have been, you know, the motivating factor and the fact for somebody who was undecided mm. at the point, oh, you know, certainly stoking the outrage. But ultimately, it's a bit of a cop out to kind of, you know, blame the Russians and say it was the Russians because it Trump is a product of our society. Trump is a product of all of the things that were happening in U.S. politics. I mean, the Russians didn't select him in the primaries. Mm. Republican registered voters selected him in the primaries or rejected, let's just say, the other candidates it was a pool of 17 candidates. Now, then they did, you know, kind of mess about when they got into the election. Well, it sits um, Trump versus Hillary Clinton it was incredibly damaging. The hack and release of uh, the DNC and Hillary Clinton's emails. It's very clear that Trump was quite willing and his team were to take any derogatory information about her from any quarter whatsoever. They were going to play dirty and they didn't care how dirty they played. But I would argue that the Russian and Trump campaign interests were acting in parallel. And we should have had a much larger inquiry into what the Russians were doing across the board. You know, we know a lot of what they were doing in social media, how they were targeting other campaigns, because I know for a fact they were, you know, in the primary phase. And, you know, kind of then afterwards, all of these, you know, larger, sophisticated games they were playing. We should have unpacked all of that instead of just immediately running to the idea that the Russians produced Trump and had, you know, kind of no other role here to play. Because again, Trump was feeding off the grievances and, you know, kind of reaching out across the heads of the mainstream parties, all the mainstream candidates, to people who were disaffected. And they were disaffected because something Vladimir Putin did to them or said to them, or the, um, you know, Bova from St. Petersburg and the Internet Research Agency, who were disaffected from what was happening in their communities. And I know some of those communities really well. It's not just that they're like my home community in the north of England, but my family lived there. You know, I, my uh, extended family, I married into a, a very large family from the Midwest. I go out there. I've been going out there, you know, since 1990 on a regular basis. So, you know, I'm seeing all of this. I've, you know, I've got friends all the way around the country. I've also got my own family members, extended family, who voted for Trump. And I know why they voted for him, you know, the first time around. They did it the second time around because, you know, they felt that, you know, he'd, He'd blown it and you know they didn't like what happened and the way that he talked about things when he was in office and you know the the fact that we then you know basically said well the russians did it i mean like the russians themselves said well you know we did this you know made fun of it and of course they were thrilled because on the other hand too this what a great achievement and a victory yeah. for the russian intelligence services i bet those guys are out there popping the champagne giving each other medals high mm. fives you know we never did that during the soviet period not for want of trying they've tried yeah. to meddle in all kinds of elections and we're telling them you elected donald trump and they would say well how the mighty have fallen 
I mean, the, literally the Russian ambassador would look me in the eye and say, so are you telling me that you're a banana republic? That, you know, we, the Russians, could, you know, affect your elections when- you know, pick the president. Year? Yeah, could we handpick your president? Oh dear, you know, what's happened to you? What's happened no. to the great superpower kind of idea? So, I mean, this is very much a multiple edged sword. <laughs> you know, we, we were basically rejecting and repudiating uh, voters' choices in uh, the US election. And, you know, of course, Trump's trying to do that now, you know, on the other side of things. We're basically saying that their grievances, their concerns, you know, were, were kind of somehow false or were manipulated or invented. And we're also, you know, giving a huge win to the Russian security services when they were just, you know, kind of playing with what they'd got. Yes. I mean, there were Russian bots and uh, Twitter bots uh, amplifying messages. There were fake personas on the Internet. They were taking out ads. They were doing all kinds of things. The hack and release was you know, pretty vicious and very damaging. They were doing all kinds of things, but they were doing the kinds of things they'd always been doing. It's just they were amplified by Facebook. I would argue that Facebook and Twitter and the um, social media platforms were you know contributing to an awful lot of this and the russians were just you know kind of basically exploiting that material that was already out there we now know you know from francis haugen and the facebook whistleblower about how skewed the algorithms were so mark zuckerberg did he elect donald trump well you know he played his role as well i do recall as you as you note, i do remember the daily drumbeat of the release of emails from the dnc and the clinton campaign i remember that being a serious like the polls really reflecting those bringing Hillary Clinton down because it made sure that, you know, American media coverage was sort of split evenly between whatever Trump, you know, whatever terrible thing Trump had said that week and between these sort of emails that, that came out from the Clinton you know, campaign. And that's also a really important point. It was the media, you know, mm. also not calling out lies, um, doing the on one hand and the other hand, uh, also damaging Hillary Clinton because they ran after that. They didn't say, oh my God, this is stolen material. I shouldn't be looking at it. It was like, you know, dealing in fenced goods. People yeah. are usually arrested for that kind of thing. They were, it, was, it was kind of like that clickbait, you know, the kind of the, the way that they also ran into this as well. Another thing that was fantastic, and the Russians always assume this, Vladimir Putin assumes that most people use the internet for purient interest, you know, either to watch porn or to gamble. And, and, you know, their reading of, you know, American society uh, and pushing our buttons was spot on because, you know, the media immediately flocked out of purient interest to all these kinds of ideas of what was out there. And they wanted to rummage around in, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails as well. They didn't actually then say, no, we're not going to do this because this is stolen information. They just jumped all over it because it was all of already it was kind of, of, of legitimate interest. So this was badly handled on every single front. And when the dust settled, it, there, there wasn't actually much there, um, but it still got reported on every day. Um, now, yes, my so all of these factors damaged Hillary Clinton, hmm. who everybody thought was going to win. And, you know, she, you know, unfortunately didn't run the best campaign. She didn't go out to the places that my, you know, relatives, you know, were all there. You know, some of them said to me she was, you know, drinking champagne or palling around with Katy Perry. She didn't come to, you know, this town or that town in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So... She didn't campaign for the Electoral College because all the poll numbers were showing that she was going to win, you know, the popular vote, which she did. So Clinton got <laughs> Trump elected. <laughs> well, I, a combination. It. I mean, you can't, yeah. I, I think it was the perfect storm. Mm. And, that, and, and people are looking for a satisfying um, answer, but they can't because it yeah. was all of the above. Yeah. And yeah, the Russians played a role as well, but it's too simplistic. Even if I know that lots of people have done all this research, you know, the, to prove that causality directly. And again, the Russians were working with what they what they had. And, and remember, Trump gets, without the Russians interfering, 11 million more votes 
in 2020 than yeah. got in 2016. And that should be real pause for thought. Now, my my last question is on that topic. What do you think happens if Trump runs in 2024 and is elected? Well, if he's elected, I mean, we're done. I mean, as a democracy, because he's going to get elected on the back of a lie. And also, no doubt, on efforts to suppress the vote, uh, you know, kind of uh, bridge districts, and also on, you know, calling foul on the whole election system. He's already said that our election system, election system that worked extraordinarily well, it has to be said, was the gold standard for elections globally, is a corrupt, is bankrupt. And, you know, if he actually gets elected, having actually said all of that, I think, you know, the rest of us would be questioning, hang on, you just said that this whole system is corrupt, that this whole system is false. You know, so are you really elected? So there will be a, a massive crisis of legitimacy. And, you know, there's already, we are, are in a constitutional crisis. People are denying what happened on January 6th. We, we all know, you know, how much he tried to put pressure on the Department of Justice and all the other, you know, institutions. He's stress tested all of them. And he's also duping and, you know, basically lying to his base and getting, you know, the, the rest of the Republican Party in Congress and in the Senate to lie along with him. I mean, the fact that um, Scalise could not say that Joe Biden was elected. Mm. And even though many um, Democratic um, members of Congress suggested and actually said openly that Putin had elected Trump, Hillary Clinton conceded. Trump yes. has still not conceded difference. the election. He has yeah. still not conceded the election. And this again, this is not partisan. This is just a flat, blunt statement of fact. Hmm. Uh, Fiona Hill, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me and thanks for reading the book. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Fiona Hill on Mediate.com. <laughs>